Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of My Ruby Story. This week, we're talking to Josh Justice. Josh, do you want to say hi? Hey, thanks so much for having me. Hey, everyone. No problem. Now, uh, to remind everybody who you are, first of all, I'm going to point out you are on episode 391 of Ruby Rogues, and we've talked about front-end testing. Um, and it was kind of fun because we talked about kind of the Ruby style of testing, um, but with JavaScript and stuff like that, which was interesting to dive into. And we talked a lot about Cypress, if I remember right. Yes. Um, but yeah, do you want to give anything else or mention anything else by way of introduction before we dive in and talk all about you anyway? Sure. The uh, It'll come up over the course of our discussion, but uh, I tend to be pretty polyglot these days. So working in Ruby, working in JavaScript, um, I've done a little bit with native applications and doing some React Native as well. So I like to go broad rather than deep <laughs> and see how things that I learn apply in different contexts. So you'll see that uh, the lack of focus and diversity of focus as we go. Uh, but yeah, I work at Big Nerd Ranch where I get a chance to do consulting in a bunch of these different technologies from project to project. So I really like that variety. Yeah, and it's funny because I've been a, in Ruby for a long time and I think my first exposure to Big Nerd Ranch was the iOS book. So This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Yeah, a lot of folks say that. Um, we get folks asking us about that and uh, mentioning it in conferences a lot of the time. So I uh, am so bad at research. I didn't know Big Nerd Ranch was in Atlanta where I am, but I really enjoyed their macOS programming book back before iOS came out. And right. then uh, that gave me the confidence such that when iOS came out, I was like, oh, maybe I can do native development. And so I tried it. So and then just a couple of years ago, I found out that they're right around the road for me. <laughs> That's funny. Very cool. Well, let's let's dive in. Let's back way up and let's uh, talk about how you got into programming. Sure. So I did have a fairly traditional programming upbringing. Um, my dad worked in IT and he was able to borrow some uh, com computers that weren't in use at his office. So we had access to computers very, very early, you know, mm -hmm. early 80s. Um, and so I kind of followed along with different ways to tweak them and make them work as we went. Uh, I remember uh, HyperCard was an early Mac uh, technology for, which if you read about it, actually had some, inspired the web in certain ways, but it was little stacks of virtual cards that you could program and make them interactive and build games in. And just the fact that uh, I could play a game in HyperCard and then I could click the edit button and get into how they were implemented was really cool. It reminded me of the, you know, what people say about view source on the web and being able to write script and see how things are done or at least get a hint that you could go underneath uh, underneath the hood. Um, so I knew of some games, like I think the original version of Myst, that first person adventure game. Might have been made <laughs> I remember playing that. Oh yeah. Um, that and others also might have been made in another one called Macromedia Director, um, which is a more 
uh, I guess more advanced or further along environment for making games and other interactive components. And so we again borrowed a copy of that from my dad's office for me to be able to try that out. But when programming really kind of became a bigger part of my focus was when the web came around. Um, and so for me, I'm curious, Chuck, if, if this is your background and when you connected, but uh, CGI bin scripts written in Perl was where I first got started in that. Nope, wasn't really my thing. In fact, uh, I don't think I've ever written Perl. So. Oh, wow. All right. Well, you see those, those scary parts of Ruby and wondering well, why all those crazy symbols are in there, then Perl is the answer, I think, is what Matt usually says. Um, but yeah, just being able to see um, a web page. It was a Minesweeper game that I made. Oh, and, there you go. Uh, the, uh, where the locations of the mines were stored right in the view source, so you could hack into it if you wanted to. <laughs> but it was... I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's just the way things were back then. Um, but yeah, just to be able to see that I could make that interactivity and my friends could check it out right away, like even at that early time, the accessibility of web apps and how easy it was for them to spread um, was really, really appealing. And so from, the, from then on, um, I was really interested in the web and web programming and worked in a few different technologies over the years. Very cool. Yeah, I, so I got into programming. I mean, I did some in college. I did some in high school. But uh, yeah, Perl just wasn't, I guess, part of the way that I learned it. I did Java in college. And then um, I had a friend of mine who was, he, he had built his own e-commerce site back before there were really e-commerce sites. Hmm. And he was selling like sporting equipment. And he was doing it all in PHP. And I, I thought that was super cool. So I started building this app in PHP that never saw the light of day. There's probably a reason for that. <laughs> I'd also done some bash programming because I was, I worked in it at the university I attended at BYU. Um, but yeah, just uh, got into it that way. And I didn't take programming seriously until I found Ruby. So. Wow. So yeah, the, uh, the connections to Java and PHP kind of tracks with my trajectory mm -hmm. as well. So I had Java in college and worked in Java out of college for about five or six years. Right. Um, and then I, I wasn't specifically looking to change technologies, but the companies I ended up going for ended up having a PHP. And so I was okay with that. Uh, they, I was more interested at that point, and I still really am in a work-life balance, a good work environment. And so that was more important to me than any specific technology. And so I connected to some organizations that were using PHP and, um, through that, the, that was like the last step for me before I ended up getting into Ruby. Um, right. What happened was um, I was looking to get into testing. I had, I think I probably mentioned this on the testing episode, but I just found that switching from technology, like language to language and framework to framework, there was improvements for mm -hmm. sure, but they didn't solve the fundamental problems of difficult to deliver reliable software right. or deliver getting slower and slower over time. So I really got interested in trying to figure out automated testing. And uh, there was tools in PHP and the frameworks that I was using, but right. I always say to folks that the paths for testing were just much more well-trod in the Ruby world and the Rails world. And so um, I had uh, had some friends that were encouraging me to look into Rails, and I had done a little bit on a side project. But when I checked out Michael Hartle's Rails tutorial and saw mm -hmm. just how testing was incorporated all the way along through the whole tutorial, it was amazing. Like just the fact that it could be so easy to test got me really excited, and I was pretty much uh, undeterrable from trying to find a Ruby job after that point. <laughs> nice. It's, it's amazing to me how many people have come into Ruby due to Michael's uh, Rails tutorial. Um, I've, I've talked to a whole bunch of people you know, all across the Ruby community. And yeah, I, I remember when he came out with it. I mean, I, I was already in the Ruby community when it came out. I'd been working in Ruby for a year or two. 
And yeah, a lot of people were excited about it. And then, yeah, a whole bunch of people just came in learning that technology. And then I love, yeah, the, the approach there was definitely with testing. I don't remember if it was TDD or had you write the test afterward. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was really interesting also just to see, yeah, that he really kind of latched on to that aspect of Rails where uh, DHH made testing a first-class citizen in Rails because it was important to him. Yeah, since then, you know, working at a place where writing technical books and other kind of content is huge, I'm coming to learn from those more experienced authors just how hard it is to teach testing at the same time as right. teaching the thing itself. And I think it's, it's certainly a testament to Michael's writing ability and his commitment mm -hmm. to it. And I think off the top of my head, I think it's probably also a testament to the high level of abstraction that Rails works at, where there's not so many technical details about doing it. Um, you know, you have some mental space left over for learning testing at the same time. And I think there's a huge benefit from that, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny too, I actually emailed Michael and I was like, so I'm working on this book. How do I, you know, how do I get an editor? And he just said, oh, I never got an editor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, and he's like, I was just confident enough in my own writing ability. And yeah, I think that really does. I mean, he has a, I think he has a PhD in computer science. He has a PhD in something, maybe it's physics. Now that I think about it, but I'm yeah, so, regardless of what it's in. So, that's but, but yeah, so he, you know, he's written a lot of stuff yeah. and had it critiqued. And so he was pretty confident that he could communicate clearly what he was doing. So uh, yeah, that's all to say, I guess, that it's awesome. So if you're getting into Rails and you're listening to this, go check it out. Definitely. So I've get in. I've written down, I wanted to just say thanks to you and to all the Ruby Rogues one more time as I did on the other podcast. Um, I really binge watched, uh, binge listened to the podcast as I was getting into Rails and it got this job and it made a huge impact on me, learning specific things about architecture and testing and design, as well as just getting for a feel for the community and the people and the values of it. And just how different it was from not just being focused on big enterprising things to be implemented, mm -hmm. not just being focused on the technical details or wizardry of a certain framework, but the people and the approach and a real maturity in like how can we build reliable software that lasts. So yeah. thank you one more time for your uh, impact on me in that way. Well, I appreciate that, but I have to give a lot of credit to a lot of other people. So. Yeah. And, and it's funny because the, the things that you're talking about are things that were important to them. I didn't even know what I was doing when, when we started Ruby Rogue. So, yeah. That's great. That's so cool to see all of their influences. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I care about those things now and I push them myself. But, yeah, initially, um, a lot of it was driven by um, James and Avdi and uh, Josh and Dave much more than me. So, yeah. You know, that really connects to um, something that I've been learning just in the last few years about the personal aspect of programming. And, you know, a lot of folks, but especially mm -hmm. in the Ruby world, emphasize that. But I think that I was very independent at first and just like, I'm going to figure out how to be a better programmer. I'm going to figure out what works best and just kind of doing things on my own. But seeing the impact of being a, for, for me, it was Big Nerd Ranch and like the Big right. Nerd Ranch community and the Ruby community were kind of one and the same. They were my, both of them were the step in at the same time. And seeing how being around smart people and people with passions that could rub off, mm -hmm. off on me. Um, I was learning uh, testing and learning good software design and learning right. how to be compassionate in code review um, way better than reading any amount of books, no matter how hard I studied. And so, I mean, that just connects to what you were just saying. Like, you know, you could go get advice on how to run a good podcast or how to have good values to impact other developers with, mm -hmm. but just having other people there with you um, we all grow one another. And uh, 
I, I say that I've kind of become a hippie since I've become in this community and uh, <laughs> I, I just embrace it um, because I never was a very people oriented person, but I, it's inescapable now. I can't deny yeah. the impact that other people have had on me and be being open to them and listening to them and learning from them. Yep. hundred percent. I, I completely agree. So you get into Ruby, you're, you know, you're working for Big Nerd Ranch. Um, and, and yeah, I, I didn't know until um, somewhat recently that they had the Ruby focus as, as some, some of the things that they did. So I guess my question is, is as you've gone along, what kinds of things have you learned there? And what kinds of things have you done in your career? It could be a project, it could be um, you know, a lot of people, it's like, well, I haven't done open source, but then they talk about a blog or things like that. Um, you know, which is also a contribution to the community. What kinds of things have you done that you're really excited about or proud of? Yeah. You know, I think the big picture theme, as you ask that question, I think I like to synthesize information. Um, I don't know enough philosophy or whatever to know the technical definition, but like rather than coming up with brand new concepts, I like to see what other people have said uh -huh. or shared find out what's beneficial. And especially if I see a couple of ideas that don't fit together, like they contradict, um, trying to figure that out. Um, yeah. I think I drove some of my coworkers crazy because I, I was <laughs> is it this one or is it this one? And they're like, I don't know, we just kind of figure it out. And I'm like, I want to know. Um, and it wasn't, you know, I, it was something else I learned from the team. It wasn't about which of these is right and which of these is wrong. Like I was okay with different contexts, having different solutions mm -hmm. and different people, you know, preferring to work in different ways. So that was totally fine. But when people were saying um, ideas about, well, tests are valuable for this versus static types are valuable for this, and the things that they were, just as an example, right. they were saying, like, I, it did, wasn't clear how they fit together. Like, I wanted to learn more. I wanted to dig in and to come into a decision for myself. Uh, here's the role that I think that these two things play. And so, like, I had a number of blog posts on my personal blog and on the Big Nerd Ranch blog where I was kind of going over these old things and things that were from, from years gone by, even in the Ruby community, but putting them together. I think testing was one of the first ones where I wrote a blog post about, okay, like, you know, there's this classical or classicist uh, TDD, you know, Ken Beck and some other folks. There's mockist TDD, which, you know, our spec world is very influential mm -hmm. on that. Um, there's whatever it is that DHH believes about TDD. And so I kind of included that in there. <laughs> and just trying to learn about them. Yeah. Um, you know, listening to the, the TDD is dead talk and uh, some interviews that he did with uh, Kent Beck and with um, Martin Fowler. Martin Fowler, yeah. Um, yep. and just trying to take in all that info and uh, uh, come up to some opinions myself. Um, I think another series that a friend of mine who's a, a Rails developer just found actually was a series on ways to go beyond model view and controllers. And uh, it was based a lot on a talk that uh, Brian Helmkamp did a number of years ago on uh -huh. uh, the same topic, uh, but also mentioning some of the gems that were used uh, today to, to pull off those things. And some of the things I learned from my coworkers of when it's useful to reach for these patterns and when it's not. So um, that was when I just synthesizing those things and putting those ideas out there was a big part of what I got passionate about. And I think that's when I started to get interested in creating content, um, writing, which eventually turned into meetup talks, which eventually turned into doing screencasts and live streaming. So I think that kind of content creation in that sense is one of the big passions of mine that has come out of, uh, of joining Bigger Ranch. Awesome. And you, you, I don't know if you mentioned it, but learntdd.in. Yes. Yeah, so this one I mentioned a lot on the other podcasts as well. So this is when, uh, when test-driven development was something that I came back to again and again. 
and was looking for ways to apply it in different frameworks that I was working in, in Ember and in native iOS development uh, and things like that. Um, I wanted to be able to apply the same TDD process wherever I went or just to see if it was possible. And so I ended up uh, making this website to put the tutorials that I put together there. It was uh, substantial enough that I wanted to have them kind of live in one place. And there was a fun .in domain name that was available. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wanted to grab that. And um, it's been something that I've been revisiting over and over as I'm learning TDD better, um, as new tools are becoming available in different programming communities, but to have it as a steady thread. And uh, I think I may, moving forward, I may move it more towards like advocating, like trying to encourage folks to try TDD if they hadn't before. Right. But at this point, it was even just like, how, how do you even do it? Like, how would it even be possible to do? And then you can kind of decide for yourself how much you do or don't want to reach for it in your particular. Right. So how long have you been writing it on uh, learntdd.in? It's probably been about two years. I uh, had it going for a little while, and then I actually started getting discouraged as I was not finding good ways to do test-driven development in a bunch of different communities. And so I actually let the domain name lapse. Uh, thankfully, it's not the most you know coveted domain name in the world, so it was still available. <laughs> yeah. back up. But it was, it was when I found out about Cypress um, as a really good, really modern testing tool for web application development, uh, testing of web applications. And then around the same time, I also found out about Detox, which is a great testing tool for React Native, which I was getting into at the time. And the oh, combination nice. of the two of those just kind of gave me renewed energy that it really was possible to do uh, really good, efficient testing and even test-driven development in a lot of different contexts. So I, I re-registered it, uh, pulled out the old Jekyll markdown files, and uh, slapped it back up there. Ah, good old Jekyll. Yeah. <laughs> it's the old standby. It's always there for you, always reliable. Yep. Very cool. Well, yeah, I, I definitely encourage people to go check that out. I think it's a terrific resource. And yeah, I might go dig into this. I've been wanting to learn React Native. Um, I think Vue.js is my next uh, project area. But yeah, after that. And I'm actually temp I've tempted. I'm, I'm very likely going to start doing a video series, doing a Rails plus Vue app and just walk through what I'm doing with it and all the mistakes I'm making. And we'll see where that winds up. But yeah. That's great. Um, so yeah, so what are you working on these days then? Um, so I've got a couple of, uh, things that have come out recently. I sort of, over the holidays, I took some time to kind of reflect on like what I wanted to focus on for 2019. Mm -hmm. I'm not always a new year's resolution person or anything like that. Um, but I found as I, you know, I guess I, I did shift a little bit more towards depth away from breadth. And uh, you know, I've still got some uh, React stuff going on and some Vue stuff going on at work. But I decided um, that I have a passion for Rails and actually for Ember.js as well um, that I really wanted to focus on this year. And so, um, and also just some of these values of testing and agile development that I really wanted to just promote and kind of focus on. So mm -hmm. a few things I'm doing related to those, um, I decided I've been doing a Twitch live stream uh, once a week to kind of live stream some coding. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, so that was, I'd never even watched Twitch live streams, but my uh, former boss encouraged me towards it. He saw potential that I have, and it turns out I super got, uh, fell in love with it. Um, so I'd streamed a few different series, but what I'm going to be doing is, and I've just started one week of it now, is building out an app from scratch with an Ember.js front end and a Rails API backend. Uh -huh. um, and some of the reason is just to get myself a chance to be working in those week to week. Yep. Um, but some of it as well, uh, my previous uh, streams have been very tutorially. Um, but this one, I really want to take a very um, 
real world approach. Like I'm just going to code it the way that I would do my side projects and actually really pretty much like I'd be doing professional projects as well. Right. Um, so there's maybe going to be some things that I don't explain as well as I might otherwise. Um, but I'm going to do things in the order that that works. Um, like I spent the whole first episode just setting up CI and deployment and dependency automatic updates. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. not the most interesting thing in the world, but it communicates to people like I value getting these things set up from the start. Um, so they right. really run well going forward. Um, and uh, another thing is, you know, I, my previous streams have been very test driven development heavy, but in this case, I'm going I'm to be honest and say that I'm the idea for this app. I'm not sure if it's going to be that interesting. Like I think it will, but I feel very uncertain. And so I don't really want to test drive something yet. I want to get some screens together and try it out and see if it's useful to me or not. Um, I've right. had a few failed starts with this app before where it just didn't grab my attention. And so I think it's great incentive for me to really try that spiking approach to really say, I want to just see what works. I want to see if this gets me motivated to keep it going. And I think that's great to, to balance my kind of testing advocacy uh, to say that it's not always the right thing to do. So yeah. that's one thing that I'm doing in that stream series. Um, another thing is, I've seen, and uh, maybe some other Rails and Ruby developers can identify with this. Um, so there's, there's a lot of trends going on in the programming world. Um, a lot of them are not necessarily the things that I'm used to working in, in the Rails world and in the Ruby world. Um, and I have, uh, I'm getting older, and so I have a little bit of resistance to change. And I try to counteract that. I try to be open. But as, as I think about the rationale for why some new technologies and approaches come in, it doesn't seem to me that they're taking into account some of the things that uh, the industry and that we in particular have valued in the past. And so when I'm, I'm trying to think about some of these topics and really dive in deeper to think about the trade-offs and write about them. And partially it's kind of just a way to say, I have trouble having these conversations off the top of my head. So if I can just like write a blog post, A, it'll get my thinking into a better shape so that I can have a better conversation. And B, if right. I'm being lazy, I can just point people to the blog post to say, here are my thoughts. <laughs> Maybe it's a way to shut down conversations too. I don't know. Maybe that's my, my motivation. Um, so the first blog post on this topic was on object oriented and functional programming um, as two approaches that on the surface seem contradictory, but when you dive in a bit more and I hear a lot of folks say that they can be very complementary. Mm -hmm. And yet at some point I hear some folks almost sound as if they're saying there's no real distinction at all. And that just seemed confusing to me and, and unintuitive. Right. So I just wanted to dive into, this is getting back to that synthesis idea again. Mm -hmm. I wanted to dive into like, in what ways are these approaches compatible and in what ways are they not? And uh, right. some very kind folks were willing to provide me with some great ideas and answer my silly questions to get them to be slightly less silly questions. And I ended up writing something that's useful for me to think about these things. And so um, I'm hoping to do a few more blog posts like this, but that one was really fun to put together. Cool, very cool. And yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, um, we've had some discussions just uh, in the Ruby community about some of the functional like um, functionality that we get out of like innumerable and things like that, you know? And so, yeah, you know, some of these concepts really do play nicely with uh, object oriented, but then yeah, other, you know, other things. Yeah. Just, you know, immutability. I, you know, I see people go back and forth on that and some of these other concepts that have come out of functional programming and yeah, how does it work? But then you see a different blend in JavaScript and some of these other languages out there that kind of have aspects of both. And so, yeah, I'd love to see where you wound up on that. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely check it out. I mean, it's, it's easy for me to be tempted to be judgmental and to say like, why aren't folks reading these old materials? Like even the old Java books on object oriented design and testing that I found so useful 
And yet, mm-hmm. like, I, I don't, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there to read. Like, I can't force anybody yeah. to read anything. And so in my more positive moments, I am hopefully thinking about myself as like, maybe I can point some people to these things. Like, maybe I can be a bit of a bridge, like go beyond my comfort zone, learn about some new paradigms. And even if I find that I continue programming mostly in the same way as I have been, mm-hmm. um, at least to be able to describe why in a balanced way um, and put it out there. And if I can start a conversation with folks that say, hey, I see the things about object-oriented programming or about mutability that you're advocating, Josh, um, and I've learned something through that, here's why I'm reaching for immutability or functional programming or static types more so, um, then we've got a sense of trade-offs. Then we've got an acknowledgement of where things have been and where they're going, and we kind of dampen the the swing on the pendulum a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. I say in some sense, I'm technology-wise, I'm conservative in the sense of I don't I'm more concerned about losing things we have known than I am about missing out on new things. So I want to be the person that keeps the values we have and takes slow steps towards something new rather than the person that that throws them out, jumps all the way into something new and then has to um, get burned and rediscover backing it off a little bit. Right. I I, I would be stuck if there wasn't people pushing the envelope. And so hopefully it's a collaborative thing. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's a balance to be had there as well. Um, and if you can apply the tried and true principles while you move ahead, right, then, then you're not banging your head against the wall where somebody's already invented something that will solve your problem for you. Yeah. I mean, Chuck, I imagine, you know, being on podcasts in these different programming communities, you probably get that breadth of exposure to different ways of thinking. Um, I yeah. can imagine that would uh, either stretch you, uh, make you question like why you're doing things to think about the why uh, or mm-hmm. even disperse some new thoughts. Is that a fair assessment? Yep. And sometimes on the shows, it's interesting because I'll be on like a Vue.js show and I'll be like, well, you know, the Elixir community, right? Because we have an Elixir show. We've talked about this other thing and it's somewhat similar, but it, you know, it puts these uh, limitations in place that make it really nice, you know, because they're complaining about, you know, something that, you know, we just, we, we always wind up way off over here where we're trying to get, you know, to another place and, you know, just things like that. I can't think of a specific example off the top of my head, but I have definitely brought in ideas from one community and mentioned it on the show for the other, just because it's, well, Hey, you know, they have the solution over there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely the person I would show up at the Ember meetup and I'd be talking about react and talking about view. And it's like, Oh, Josh is that guy who's always thinking about the other framework, but the cross pollination, like, and I've, I've found it so much. Like I, the first example I can think of that cross pollination was, um, I was working in PHP at the Laravel community. Talk about mentioning yet another framework. Um, <laughs> yep. The senior developer with us was trying to get us into using queues for background processing. And uh, that's, you know, it's huge in the Rails world, mm-hmm. of course. But for me, it was brand new. And I was like, oh, like, you know, we have a fairly junior team. Like, this is new to me. I'm sure I was resistant to change. Right. Um, I, I don't know if we want to introduce this complexity. And yet, when I did a little bit of iOS work, and I found that the huge focus was on, hey, there's the UI thread where your UI is responsive. Mm-hmm. Don't do any complex processing on there. Get that off onto another thread. Right. And I was like, oh, wow, like that's, that's a core principle of iOS programming. And that's exactly what queues are doing on yeah. the web. And so all of a sudden, I was much more open to that because I'd seen an example of somewhere else where it was the core of what they did. And so I've tried to kind of be open to that cross-pollination ever since then. Yeah, and what's really interesting is then you get some of the, how do I put it? So then you've got things like progressive web apps where they move a lot of that stuff off to a service worker, right? I mean, even even down to the request to the back end, right? And and so it's it's this thread over here, you know, the service worker that's doing a lot of that work. And then yeah, 
the the main thread can just focus on the UI and make the experience better for the user. Yeah. And, and you see a lot of these ideas, they come back around again and again and again. And yeah, you know, they, they've been invented there and then discovered here. Yeah. You know, I, I got a computer science degree in college, but I was never someone who loved the theory of all the data structures and the algorithms and the distributed computing concepts. Some folks do, and that's mm -hmm. wonderful. But for me, I'm realizing as you're saying this, that it's, it's almost emerging. Like as I'm going from one community to another, like I, I see these themes about concurrency, about distributed yeah. and like background processing. And like, so like these core computing ideas, they just emerge as I'm working. And I, I find that the ones that are useful, the ones that I need to reach for, as I am just learning from other folks. So I guess for me, like getting into those more abstract concepts, it's something that I'm just coming to over years and years of, of working in different things. So I guess yep. I back into those concepts myself. Yep, absolutely. So I hear you also had a uh, recent change in your family setup. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Sure do. Yeah, we adopted a little boy as of, uh, he's just five weeks old now. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so we have we have two uh, natural born daughters, uh, but we decided that we wanted to adopt for a third child, and so we, as a whole complex process that I could talk about in a long period. Of time. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I have a few neighbors that have adopted, you know, from out of state, from in state, and yeah, it gets complicated for sure. So we had uh, it had been almost a year that, since we'd even just put the word out publicly and letting friends and family know, um, and asking them to kind of be involved. Um, and in September, we got uh, matched uh, with uh, uh, a woman who wanted to place a baby for adoption. Um, and it was in Baton Rouge. And so we headed out there. Um, we were very excited about it. Um, and then a few days after we got into town, we found that she had decided to parent the baby. Um, and we had knew, known that this was a possibility. And we, I mean, if, if a birth family can parent the baby, that's absolutely the best. And so we were really glad for that. But as you can imagine, it was still pretty disappointing that's for us as well. Um, so we were there, we had just gotten to Baton Rouge. We um, had a house rented for the next month. And I was like, well, what are we doing here? Like, what are we gonna do? And yet we, um, uh, we decided, you know, we've got the house rented. Like, we're not feeling too, it wasn't feeling like discouraging for us to be there. It was like, oh, this is a fun place to be. Um, I think for us, the being separated from day-to-day -day life was helpful kind of to have time to process how we were feeling. Um, so we decided to stay there for the month of December. But the lawyer that we were connected with, um, got us matched with, well, she, she presented us to a few other birth mothers. Um, and one of them decided to match with us uh, right away. This was within like two weeks of the first match failing through, falling through. Right. And um, anybody who hasn't worked in uh, adoption or gone through this process might not know, but that's extremely unheard of. I mean, people can go years and years without um, being matched. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other thing was, you know, usually when you get matched, um, somebody is four or five months along. Um, and you have a few months. And so we thought that we might, uh, you know, meet her, head back home, and then come back out when the baby was born. Um, but come to find out, like, there was a misunderstanding for how far along she was, and the baby was due just in, like, two or three weeks. And so oh, wow. we ended up extending our stay in Baton Rouge to spend time with her and her family for that time, uh, get to be there for the baby being born. And uh, it was just this whole two-month-long experience of being there. It was really mm -hmm. amazing. Um, and so we, our, our Christian faith was really what motivated us to adopt. Like we saw the needs of these babies out there and really wanted to meet a need um, as we were able to. And so we were praying the whole time in the process, really praying once uh, the first match fell through. And uh, just, the, just how unheard of it is to be matched within several weeks with a baby due only a few weeks beyond that and getting that time mm -hmm. with the birth family. Um, we really feel like God really provided for us in a unique way and took something that could be a huge disappointment 
into an amazing positive experience, as well as a story to tell him and uh, our friends for the rest of his life. That's awesome. That's amazing. And I mean, yeah, it doesn't work out for everybody, but you know, sometimes it's, I don't, I don't know a word beyond miraculous that, you know, you know, it just feels like it was, it was supposed to go that way. So yeah. Right. And I, one other thing I'll say is like people are encouraging to us about how we handle the process. Um, I know a lot of folks who adopt, they adopt because they are having infertility issues and right. they aren't able to have physical children. And I can only imagine how much harder that would have been for them. Like it was a big disappointment for us, but like we mm-hmm. had our two daughters there with us and, you know, we were a family, we were supporting one another. Um, so certainly anybody who's had um, an extended time trying to adopt who's has infertility or does not have children yet. Um, I, I just understand how much harder and challenging the situation is for them. And uh, just makes me want to support them like friends and family, people I hear of mm-hmm. who are trying to adopt in the future. Cause I've seen um, it was a challenge for us, how much more so for them and just really hope for them that they get to experience meeting a need and, and having a child in their family when they wouldn't right. otherwise be able to. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I, I, I love those stories too. And, and just the, the experience that people have and the, uh, I guess the reaffirmation of, you know, where you're at and what you believe. And, right. you know, I, I think, I think all of those things are important and, you know, I, I'm a person of faith as well. I believe that God guides us in a lot of ways. Um, sometimes we don't see his hand until, you know, it's kind of obvious and it feels like that's a little bit of where you're at. So, yeah. Absolutely. Very cool. Well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and move on to picks. Do you have anything you want to shout out about? Sure. I think it, two things that I've been working on recently related to Ruby. One is I've gotten to try out Webpacker for the first time. So this That's is the great uh, technology. Yeah, the Rails technology that allows you to uh, build React or Vue or other front-end apps um, in a pre-configured way without having to set it all up yourself. Um, mm-hmm. I've just, uh, just a week now, I've been working on a project that's a Rails backend. And one particular area of it, not the whole application, but one particular screen that's really rich that we're building a, Rails, uh, a React front-end for. And working with Webpacker has been really great. Um, I've been working with React and other technologies really just in a purely JavaScript standpoint up until this point. Mm-hmm. And what I found with Webpacker is I was able to reach for all the same uh, NPM packages that I was able to before. Um, I haven't needed to tweak Webpack at all, so I don't, need, I don't have an input on that. But just the fact that I didn't need to tweak Webpack was great. I could add in Babel packages as needed to get new JavaScript features. And uh, it was just a really smooth process. Um, I know I can't speak to if you, know, if you had never touched a rich JavaScript framework before. I'm not for sure if you know, starting with Webpacker would work um, or if some of that knowledge that I got from being in the weeds, being in the details was helpful. Um, but I see very few downsides. Like it's, it's the Rails conventional way to build these. And so setting up this team that has mostly Rails experience and not a lot of front-end experience, it seems like it's gonna really set them up for success um, because they can do Rails in the Rails way. They can do React in the React way. Like just about anything they look up about React is gonna work just the same way. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like it's the best of both worlds when it comes into enhancing your Rails server rendered app. Awesome. Um, the other pick I wanted to recommend is a book, it's an old book, it's called Object Thinking. Um, so this actually um, was recommended to me by Avdi by way of Sandy Metz. Um, it's kind of funny. I, <laughs> I'd gone to a Sandy uh, training, uh, practical object-oriented design training several years ago. And uh, I highly recommend anyone to check those out. Obviously Sandy is very, very well known in the Ruby world, but being there in person was incredibly impactful for the uh, software design reasons, as well as the human reasons that we were talking about earlier. Um, 
But I asked her, like, where can I go for a resource to learn better about the way you think about software and object-oriented design? And she said, Abdi Graham recommended this book to me. I haven't re read it yet, but I'm recommending it to you. And <laughs> so I was like, oh, nice. Um, and it's called Object Thinking. It's from 2004. And um, it's really about the philosophy of object-oriented design. And I mean philosophy literally. I mean, he is mm -hmm. getting into two schools of philosophical thought on how reality works. Um, into the history of the, those philosophies and the history of software engineering and how it plays out. And I guess the, the teaser that I give to anyone is if you feel like there's the, the Ruby world and the object-oriented dynamic language world that thinks about software one way, and then there's other folks that think about things in a very different way and like, why do they think about it that way? And you might be frustrated like I am sometimes, or you might just be like, it's just so different. Like, why would it be so different? I read this book and I was like, this explains so much of my experience as I think about different programming communities and how they think about the world. And so it's, I've revisited many, many times. It's come into that, that blog post that I wrote about object-oriented functional programming. So there's a real richness there. So if you really wanna dig into the why behind how people think about objects, how people think about uh, agile design, um, I highly recommend it. And awesome. those are my picks. Very cool. I'm gonna jump in here with a few picks as well. Um, I've been listening to a book that this is the story of my life. I swear I've been listening to a book and I, here's what I learned. Um, so the, the book that I've been listening to is called the effective executor, uh, or effective executive, sorry, not executive, an executor or something else. Anyway. So, um, anyway, it's been really, really interesting. It's an older book. Uh, it's by Peter Drucker and, uh, he talks a lot about, you know, being a manager, uh, you know, things like that. So, um, I've really, really just, uh, I've really been enjoying it. It's kind of pushed me to think about, you know, what my role is here at devchat.tv because initially it was just, Oh, we're starting another show. And so we'll, you know, um, I just, I'll just be on the show right <laughs> with everybody else. And, uh, I've really been thinking about, okay, you know, what's the most effective way for me to, to move forward? Because, uh, currently, um, I host or co-host what nine of the shows on dev chat. Wow. And yeah, I mean, I just, I kind of got to, okay, this is starting to be too much. It would be nice if I had another day or two every week that I could, um, you know, work on the business instead of, you know, sitting in a meeting you know, which is fine. And, and the podcast kind of are meetings and kind of are not meetings, but yeah, it, it really made me think about, okay, what role am I filling? And I have a business coach that has kind of pushed me to, you know, define roles in my business, but I didn't apply that to myself until now. And so just looking at that and saying, okay, what do I contribute? And realizing that making all of this stuff run is more important than me showing up for some of these shows um, made me really decide, okay, um, you know, I, I, I'm probably going to cut back my appearances to two or three shows and it's just going to be, those are going to be the shows that, you know, I, I really feel like more than anything else I need to be around for. And then, yeah, we'll see how it goes from there. So, um, it's interesting too, cause I thought about just cutting out all my Wednesday shows, the ones that record on Wednesday, but then I realized that one of those shows struggles if I'm not there. And so I've had to you know, I've had to really just uh, knuckle down on that, but yeah, just sit, just sitting down and figuring that out. And so um, the, the effective executive, if you're trying to figure stuff out, 
And I actually recommend it for everybody, not just for managers, right? It'll talk a bit about, okay, you know, meetings and, you know, here's how you manage people and stuff like that. But a lot of it really is just how do you define um, effectiveness and how do you then optimize for effectiveness? And it'll give you a whole bunch of ideas. And there's no reason why you can't take some of these ideas back to your boss and say, hey, I've been reading this book and it has this idea about meetings that might make our time usage more effective, right? And so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to pick that. And since I rambled on so long about it, I think I'm just going to leave it there. But uh, yeah, anyway, um, I guess one last question I have for you, Josh, is if people want to find you online, where do they go? Sure. Uh, I tweet all the time. Uh, and so they can find me at Coding It Wrong is my Twitter handle. I'm also nice. Coding It Wrong on Twitch. And so if folks want to check out this uh, Rails API and Ember front end stream, uh, that would be great. Um, Rails API features uh, that have been built in since 5.0 or so are really, really great. And so I just love reaching to Rails for that as well as for sort of rendered apps. Um, and I have my uh, web, my main website is codingitwrong.com and that would link over to learntd.in and any other uh, kind of resources that I work on in the future. Right. Awesome. So um, I think I'm going to leave this in and not end the show, but I've got a quick question for you. How is your Twitch setup set up? Um, yeah, I have a pretty simple setup. I think because I wasn't pumped about uh, inherently about live streaming, I wanted to try something simple. Um, and uh, there's a lady named Noop Cat. I always say it Nuke Cat in my head, uh, but I think Noop is the way it's pronounced. Um, she is a really effective Twitch streamer, and she wrote a blog post about how uh, to get into it and what her setup is. And so I can find that uh, blog post real quick and share it. But it's very simple talking about um, getting a simple microphone. Um, OBS is the name of an open source uh, live streaming software that's very easy to set up. Um, and you can just start sharing your screen and you just plop your video feed on there. Um, I'll say the other thing that's helped me with that is uh, having a comfort level public speaking. Um, right. You know, live coding, of course, is kind of scary, but there's something about the live stream format that's lower pressure. Um, mm. I love the fact that I don't have to go back and edit anything because it's like, oh, I just leave all the mistakes in. It's wonderful. Right. So, yeah, I think, I mean, but I, I would encourage folks who haven't done as much uh, public speaking to try it out as well. Um, just, you know, like I've said here, like I'm not preparing something very well prepared for this Ember and Rails app. I'm just going to kind of go through one thing at a time. And I even think about the fact that when I have a mistake or get stuck for a while, like that shows people that it happens to anyone. Um, and it shows people troubleshooting skills and it shows them um, the, the solution that I ended up finding there so that they can remember that if they run into the same thing. Does that answer your question about the stream setup? Yep. Yeah, I've had I've had somebody else recommend OBS to me. But yeah, and then like I said, you know, I'm looking at putting it out there. So yeah, Twitch might be a good place to do it. Yeah. Because I'm looking at doing my own series. Here's how you code this. And essentially what I want to do is I just want to pick a project and say, okay, here's the project and here's the stack. And here's, you know, and then here's how I'm doing it. And then, you know, do that for three months and then you know, if I want to keep working on it, I can, but then I'll move on to something else. And so I might do React Native next and be like, all right, we're going to do a devchat.tv app in React Native. Here we go. Boom. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'll, I'll jump around with technology. I may lose people between, um, I don't know what you call it, seasons, I guess, projects, but yeah, we'll see. Anyway, yeah. thanks for coming. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, well, we will uh, wrap this one up and we'll be back next week with another Ruby story. 
Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.